thank you. What an amazing song. What an amazing morning of worship we are sharing together. It's good to be in this place together. Robert Putnam has written a, a rather depressing title for a true book about um, the situation in our culture. He calls it Bowling Alone. Can you imagine anything more depressing than Bowling Alone? And he writes in that book that family meals in the last 25 years are down 33%. People don't eat together. Um, group meetings are down some 58%. People don't get together. And by 45% down over the last 25 years, people just do not invite other people into their homes anymore. This is the world we live in, a world that is increasingly isolated, where the iGeneration finds community in technology, listening to our iPhones, uh, using our phones in, in other ways. We, we live our lives in isolation, individually wrapped, if you will. But in 1937, a researcher at Harvard University began a study, originally called the Harvard Study of Adult Development, and they took 268 relatively healthy, well-adjusted young men at Harvard and decided to study them, not just for a little while, but over a period of time. They wanted to find out what makes people happy, what gives people a sense of well-being. And so they studied these men in a longitudinal study over a period of 72 years, looking at at all kinds of factors, physical like cholesterol and, and uh, exercise and, and then also looking at psychological factors like defense mechanisms and how people cope with problems, their marital status, um, where they lived, where they worked, what they did, a comprehensive longitudinal study and after 72 years, uh, this last year, they concluded the study and the man who has presided over it for the last 42 years, George Valent, was asked, what did you learn? And someone might have expected him to write a, a long list of things that they had learned. But he summarized it very simply. He said, the only thing that matters in this life is our relationships with other people. Now, as followers of Christ, we would extend that and talk about our relationship with the Heavenly Father. But clearly, to be healthy in this world, we will have to learn to live our lives in the shelter of each other. This is what the New Testament calls koinonia, or fellowship. Would you open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts? We've been studying there what it means to be a new community. I want to pick up just a couple of verses in chapter 2, and then I'd like to read chapter 4, verses 32 to 37 keeping in mind the passage I already read with our children, Philippians chapter 2. Let's stand together to read God's Word. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We've learned of their devotion in the early church. They were devoted. Listen to this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then in verse 44, it says, All the believers were together. And had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And in chapter 4, verse 32, just a 
A little bit later in the life of the first church, we have another sort of summary description of their life. And once again, it is all about koinonia, all about fellowship. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time... Those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. For example, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Would you pray with me, Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So how were they able to come together? It's interesting, isn't it, to ponder that this group of disciples that Jesus had called, who came from sort of all walks of life, from different places, they had come together and they were praying and then the Holy Spirit came and then all these people from different countries, different regions, different areas had gathered together in the city of Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost and then God showed up. And when God shows up, well, who knows what will happen then. It's bound to be good. The Spirit of God comes upon that small group of believers. They begin to speak. Many people are saved. And then they begin life together, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it, where we experience community with one another. We experience fellowship. The word koinonia comes from a word which means to have in common. And they had everything in common. They shared their meals, they shared their substance, they shared their lives, they shared prayer, they shared worship, they shared their whole lives. And the perplexing thing to me is, I'm wondering, how did this people, who had so little in common, begin to share everything in common? And the answer is right there in the text. They had the Holy Spirit in common. They had God in in common. And once you have God in common, then all of your other differences seem to fade away. And what we discover is that they had this fellowship in the Holy Spirit, as Paul calls it in his letter to the Philippians. They had this fellowship in the Holy Spirit, and that led to fellowship with each other. In fact, apart from the coming of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, this passage is incomprehensible. It reads something like a fairy tale because people just aren't that nice. They just don't get along in that way except their fellowship with God gave them fellowship with each other. And believe me when I say that our sense of community together, our fellowship sharing life at Tallowood will never be any better then our fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because the thing about fellowship is you can't gin it up. You can't create it on your own. But the Spirit of God can create it. And when He does, nobody confuses it with artificial friendliness or forced uh, commonality. But rather, it is the work of the Spirit to bring us together so that like that early church, we... We meet together, we eat together, we 
are together. And when that happens, the unity that is created empowers us, as we saw a few weeks ago, to share the message of Christ with an unbelieving world. And God has called us to be one. Lester Collins called my attention this week to an article he had read, and I had the same uh, journal on my desk, and so I opened it up and read it this week. And I read that this youngest generation, who are so isolated in their choices many times, have come to the place that they believe in church they need first to belong, then to believe and finally to behave. Now that's opposite of perhaps the way we have often thought of it. Well, people ought to start behaving and then they can come to church. Except apart from belief in Christ, we never really know how to behave. And, and they're saying, if we could find community, if you could show us what it means to belong, then we would believe in what you believe. We would behave the way you behave. But it begins with belonging. Well, at some level, that's what we discover in this early church, that when they came together, chapter 2, verse 47 says, then they had favor with all the people in the city. When the people saw that they could get along, they said, we want to be a part of that. We need a place to belong. So let me show you this fellowship in the Spirit as we look at chapter 4. This living in the shelter of each other shows us a sort of comprehensive fellowship that bridges, I would go so far as to say abolishes, abrogates all of our differences in this world. Notice it says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. How does that happen? Well, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. But I just want you to see how comprehensive and inclusive this is. It's all the believers. Nobody's on the outside looking in. And I long for the day when we can say at Tallowood that there's nobody on the outside looking in because everybody has been brought in. I think when I read this of James Vardaman's story of when he was a little boy growing up in Dallas and his family walked a number of miles to First Baptist Church of Dallas and they would get there on Wednesday night but they couldn't afford the meal. And so they would sit in the shadows and watch the other people eat. And one day the pastor, George W. Truett, came by and saw them sitting in the shadows and said, Why aren't you eating? We don't have any money. Tonight you're eating. And he brought them to the table and they shared with God's people all the believers. There's this comprehensive fellowship. We must give ourselves completely. This is the writer of Hebrews says in, in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as the day approaches, our work is to encourage each other, to live in community with each other. And what did they have in common? It says all the believers, what they had in common was common faith in Christ. We, we must not confuse the, the old uh, dinners on the grounds where you had a, you know, a potluck dinner. I grew up on those and those were wonderful times, but, but you could go to those and still live your life separately or in isolation. But, but this kind of community is better than that. I think, I think of that church that had coffee hour every Sunday right after church. And a new pastor came to town. He didn't understand coffee hour. He asked one of the younger members, one of the children, he said, why do we have coffee hour after church? And the little boy said, so the people can wake up before they drive home. Well, whatever it takes, probably more information than he wanted, but, but whatever it takes to bring us together and it's this common faith can I tell you you have more in common with other believers from other parts of the world 
You have more in common with them than you have in common with unbelievers who are from your part of the world. I love the way the church came together. It says they were one in heart and mind. The, the Greek says heart and soul. In fact, that expression goes back to a time, First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 38, when the, the people of Israel who've been divided, they were followers of, of Saul, but when David becomes king of Judah, there comes a moment when it says the people of Israel were heart and soul behind David becoming king. What if you and I were heart and soul committed to relationship with the Heavenly Father? I'm not telling you to have more fellowships and more socials with your class. Here's what I'm saying. Love God with your heart, with your soul, with your mind and your strength. And what you'll discover is that when we begin to love God more, we will love each other more and better than we ever have before. We'll love each other in practical ways. We'll love each other in sacrificial ways because the love of God will be shed abroad in our hearts. Through whom? Through the Holy Spirit, as Paul tells the church at Rome. It is the work of the Spirit to bring us together. And Philip Yancey talks about this and says, how else can you account for the Apostle Paul, who as a rabbi, as a Pharisee, had awakened every morning of his life and thanked God that he was not a woman, that he was not a slave, that he was not a Gentile. And yet this same Apostle Paul, after his experience on the road to Damascus, after Barnabas, by the way, puts an arm around him and says, you are one of us. After that, he writes to the church at Galatia and says, in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no male or female. There is no slave or free. For we are all one in Christ. How do we account for that transformation in his life? Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And Yancey goes on to say that a pastor friend of his who is in the country of India says that in the local church there, they discover that, the, that what really sets Christians apart is not even so much the miraculous things that God does through the church and sometimes they exp experience miracles there. They say among the Hindus and the Muslims, sometimes they can reproduce those same kinds of miracles, but what they never even try to do that the Christians do the Christians bring men and women and people of different castes and social standing together and they're the only ones who even try to do that. What if, what if we said we will be a church for all people under God and discover that in that work of the Spirit among us, bringing us together, that He abrogated, abolished all of our differences in the commonality that we have in Christ, I'll tell you about this fellowship in the Spirit. When we live in the shelter of each other, we also discover that this fellowship, this community, authenticates our message. I mean to say that when it says, with great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection, verse 33 couldn't have happened if verse 32 hadn't already happened. What gave their, their message traction in that culture was that everybody around saw that there was love. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by this. If you have love for one another. And that's why they wanted to be a part of that. That's why they wanted to share in that. They saw this, this great power that the, the apostles continued to testify the resurrection. But it's all wrapped. It says much grace was upon them all. It's true God's grace was on them. But that same word is used in chapter 2 verse 47 to say, and they had favor, grace, 
with all the people. People wanted to be a part of that. And it disturbs me when, when I hear uh, these opinion surveys and they say, what do you think of when you think of Baptists? And they say, we think of division. That makes it kind of hard for us to get the message out, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. If Jesus said, if we become one, then the world will be one. We'll be W-O-N, one to Christ. But if we don't become one, we cannot win the world. We are so much stronger together than we are separately. I read this week a, a Canadian policeman's story about a rabid wolf that came into one of the, the uh, villages in the northern extremities of Canada and it wreaked havoc. It killed animals. It, it hurt people. It attacked a, a grandmother and her grandson. The little boy held up a chair and the wolf made kindling of that chair, just splintered the chair. It was so ferocious. And, and afterward, the policeman killed the wolf, but not before it caused a lot of problems. And then he was telling the story to his friend, and his friend said, but don't you all have, I don't mean to be stereotypical, but don't you have like sled dogs up there? Don't you have like dogs to protect you? He said, yeah, we have 150 dogs in the village, but the problem is they don't get along with each other. And so we have to stake them out separately, 150 feet away from each other. And separately, the wolf was able to take advantage and harm them and harm people. But if they had been together, they could easily have overcome the wolf. And when we think about what the Scripture calls the, the plans and schemes of, of, of evil in our world, Satan and the devil and his work in our world... It's true that if the church would stand together, we could easily overcome, re resist Satan and he will flee from you. It's true he's a roaring lion, but in Christ we are much stronger. But if you and I are fighting with each other, we will never be able to bring to bear the full force of the gospel against the forces of evil in this world. It is true that fellowship in the Spirit authenticates our witness so people will want to hear what we have to say. And the great thing about fellowship in the Spirit is that it accounts for and addresses the needs of people. I think verse 30, if we look closely, I need my glasses, at verse 34 it says there were no needy persons among them. There was nobody who had any need. That's astonishing. I thought about this this week and I thought, could we say that about Tallowood? That there is absolutely no need in this congregation. You, you want to read this passage and say, well, maybe it's just because it was just a really good economic time for them. Well, it really wasn't. And yet there were no needy persons among them. Why not? Because they were committed to sharing. The ones who had something gave it so that those who had nothing could be cared for. And when they had a, a problem with that, remember with the Greek and Hebrew widows, then they addressed that and met that need. And when they did, the gospel goes forth again. What if this could be a place where it was known, if you have a need, you will not experience that need alone, but you will live in the shelter of other believers who care enough about you to meet those needs. I had a young missionary, one of our IMB missionaries, was in our home last evening. We met them out at Paisano. They have five children. They're missionaries to India. And we were just uh, spending time with them and he talked about his discouragement over there. And I said, well, tell me what's most discouraging to you on the mission field. I said, is it just the, the, the overwhelming need? I mean, I've seen uh, Slumdog Millionaire. There's a lot of need in India, if that movie is accurate. And he said, you know, I haven't seen the movie because I'm depressed by the reality in India. There is so much enormous need and poverty. He said, but that's not what bothers me. He said, I was in a village before I left and there was a baby there that was one and a half or two years old that looked like it was a, a newborn. Its skin was leathery and dry. And I said, what's wrong with this baby? And they said, this baby was not properly fed when it was a, a, a tiny infant. And so it, it just needs to be fed. And, and he said, what depresses me is that, that medical care in that village is available and accessible and cheap. 
And the church there has money, but nobody thought we should use some of our money to take care of this baby. He said, I'm not bothered by the enormity of the need in the world. I'm bothered by the paralysis of the church and their unwillingness to address that need. This is what an unbelieving world finds unbelievable. But when you and I begin to live as Christ did, when we we see the people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and we know the only shepherd who can shepherd all the sheep, and we begin to bring His power and His resources to bear upon that, that's when great things begin to happen. So Barnabas, this son of encouragement, not only embraces Paul and says, you're one of us, but he also takes his land and sells it and gives it. And and every time I stand in this room, I realize that some of you have done that very thing in order for us to be able to worship in this place. I walked for the first time this week into our chapel. I mean, what a magnificent room that is. What a great place for us to worship that will be. And I just went in that room and I was just reminded again of the incredible generosity of God's people. And we are deeply and profoundly grateful as we continue to to pay for all of this. We recognize and are grateful for the faithfulness of our God who gives to us so that we can faithfully give. And you see that this story works because the people of God are just obedient to the Lord. They share, they sacrifice what they have, they surrender it, they put it at the apostles' feet and say, hey, it's our job to give, it's your job to find the need and address the need. At Tallywood, we address that through committees. We have a missions committee and a finance committee who are working together to make the best use, to be the best stewards of the resources that God has given to us. And I think about that young man that Paul Harvey told about some time ago. He told about this, this eight-year-old boy named Ben who won a contest at the local McDonald's for a new bicycle. And he took the bicycle home and he said, Mom and Dad, I already have a bicycle, but my friend over here doesn't have a bicycle. Can I give him my new bicycle? And his parents were so grateful and the, the word got out and the manager at McDonald's said, well, I'm not going to let that stand. I'm just going to give him $100 so that he can spend it on himself. He's given away his gift. Now I'll give him something for himself. And he took the money and he bought a helmet for his friend to wear on his new bicycle. I'm telling you, some people just can't avoid giving. It's just in their nature. And this is, again, the work of the Holy Spirit to make us see the needs and, and Melanie and I have just in recent days, I cannot tell you how much God is teaching me through having a daughter in my home. I just cannot tell you how every day He's teaching me about my relationship with Him and my need to depend on Him. But I'll tell you the latest revelation for me without going into a lot of detail. I'll just tell you this, that it may be true that God is going to meet some needs in Casey's life by being a part of our family. And a lot of you have brought that to our attention. And that may be true, but what we did not anticipate was that God was going to meet so many needs in our lives by bringing her into our home. I mean to say that sometimes it is the frail and the fragile who are the ones who are so surrendered to God that they can say, I will give my life to God. And as a result, everybody is blessed. And I wonder if you and I might not see things from God's point of view and see that sometimes it's the people who have the least, who have the most ability to give themselves fully to God, thus blessing not only themselves, but blessing the entire congregation. Thank you for your faithfulness in this way. Thank you for being a community of joy, because as a fellowship, God is going to to break down every barrier and difference in this incredibly uh, 
um, international city, we will become increasingly an international church in a, in a world where there's sort of a division between generations. I envision that God will continue to break down generational division and that we will learn what it means to belong. And then as we belong, we will invite others to believe. And then as they believe, we will all begin to behave in the way that God wants us to behave. I envision a church like Anne Lamott describes in her book, Traveling Mercies, where she tells about the little girl who gets lost in her hometown and she can't find her way home. But a policeman is there and, and he picks her up in the car and he begins to drive her around to see if they can find some familiar landmark in this town. And finally, she points up at a steeple and she says, you can let me out here. And he said, is this where you live? And she said, no, but this is my church. And I can always find my way home from my church. And Anne Lamott said, I love that story because no matter how frightening and dark and fearful the world may sometimes be, if I can just see the faces of my church family, if I can just hear their tawny voices, I can always find my way home. Stay close to your church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can find our way home to you when we come together in community. We thank you, Lord, for this fellowship of joy, for the way that you are working in our lives. We thank you for what you've done, Lord. But this morning, we want to thank you for what you're doing and for what you're going to do through your people as we are faithful to you. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done and now, Lord, I pray that you will help us to be a family to each other, to meet each other's needs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.